You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. After one of these attempts, then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father? that he is trying to take my life. Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why should, should he hide this from me? It is not so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon festival, and I'm supposed to dine with the king but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him. David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But If he loses his temper, you can be sure he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, by the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon festival, You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, towards evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone Ezel, 
I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send my boy and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe and there is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon festival came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, Something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, uh, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me go and see my brothers. That's why he hasn't come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the month, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning... Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing of all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. They kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship 
with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. In the musical Evita, Eva Peron sings, Deep in my heart I'm concealing things that I'm longing to say, scared to confess what I'm feeling, frightened that you'll slip away. She doesn't want to expose her innermost feelings, lest a valued friendship is destroyed. I wonder if you can begin to identify with that, the the pressure to mask what you really feel, lest you lose the esteem and the acceptance of friends. Or it may be that some are reluctant to forge deep and meaningful friendships, because in the past you've when you've unburdened yourself to someone, they have betrayed a confidence. And so you hold folk at a distance, you bottle up your fears and your failures. It was C.S. Lewis who described friendship as the greatest of worldly goods. We need someone to whom we can unburden our hearts, who will not meet our failures with sanctimonious platitudes or censoriousness, but instead provide tender correction, wise counsel, loyal support, positive affirmation. The story of David and Jonathan provides us with a beautiful example of loyal friendship and as a biblical model, it has a great deal to teach. Uh, I want to say four things about this this evening, and the first is the source of their loyal friendship. Uh, And the first thing I want you to notice is that it wasn't a user-driven friendship. Uh, They're not asking, what's in it for me? How can I profit from this relationship? You will be aware of user-driven friendships. I want to be David's friend here, so he will give me a ride in his helicopter, the one he mentioned this morning. That's why I want to be his friend. Uh, I think uh, in popular parlance, I would be called a user. User friendship. And such friendships are generally terminated once the opportunity for personal advantage disappears. Others today want to argue that the friendship of David and Jonathan was sexually driven, and they do violence to the text as they attempt to reason that the bond that existed between these two men can only be explained by some kind of homosexual relationship. They have failed to see that the great distinctive that marks this friendship is the primary commitment of each man to God himself. David came uh, first to Jonathan's attention in chapter 17. That's where David, uh, you will remember, kills Goliath. 
uh, David is staggered that all of Israel allows this man Goliath to dishonor their God, and no one's taking him on. No one is challenging him to combat, but David does, because David is concerned for the name and for the glory and for the honor of God. And immediately after that incident, we read in chapter 18, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. For that day, Saul kept David, from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. The very obvious vertical covenant relationship that each of these men had with God became the superglue that bound them together in human friendship. Their passion for God was the habitual controlling reality of their lives. Now, it seems to me there is a very obvious application here, uh, not just for students or for those who've recently moved into a new uh, neighborhood. If you want a truly loyal friend, then find someone who has made God the great priority of their lives. Some of the greatest friendships in history have this in common. The friends are bound together by the fact that what is true of each of them is that God is the great priority in their lives. Now, David and Jonathan's covenant commitment to God and to one another is further evidenced in the frequency of the name Yahweh used in their conversations uh, 13 times in our passage. When these friends talked, Yahweh, God, was prominent in their conversation. I spoke to a young man this week who had become very disillusioned with Christianity, and this is what he said to me. I'm very passionate about sport. I talk about it every day. But when I meet up with my friends who are Christians, they never mention God to me. Can their faith be real? It's sobering, is it not? Of course, our conversation should never be forced or contrived. But if we love God, that's something that's going to come out in our speech. And it not only came out in the speech of David and Jonathan, but it's clear that their knowledge of God shaped their expectations of how they ought to behave, the one towards the other. Uh, look at verses uh, 14 and 15 uh, of our chapter. Uh, 14 reads, but show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Jonathan says to David, don't cut off your kindness. 
chesed from my family. The Hebrew word chesed is almost universally used to describe God's covenant kindness and loyalty and love. And so, Jonathan is saying to David, I expect nothing less from you, David, than that you show me God's own loving kindness. Or put it more starkly, he's saying, treat me as God would treat me. Treat me as God would treat me. And because God is the source of this covenant friendship, we can begin perhaps to understand Jonathan's words in verse verse 4, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you, he says. Notice there's no small print in this commitment, no qualifications, no exception clauses. Clearly, these are not the kind of words you would use to just anyone. (laughs) Whatever you ask of me, I'll do. Uh, Far from it. Uh, It requires supreme trust in the person addressed, lest they ask something of us that will violate our conscience or impoverish our life. This relationship is loving and sacrificial and driven by a compassionate concern for the welfare of the other, Uh, Paul himself identifies this sacrificial love in a number of places in the New Testament. For example, in Galatians 4 and uh, and 13, uh, he says to the Galatians, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. That's the kind of relationship we have, uh, says Paul. Because God wants the very best for us, those who are bound to us in covenant love also want the very best for us. But the second thing I want you to notice here is the challenge of friendship. It would be wrong to suggest that loyal friendship cannot experience significant disagreement. And the opening verses of verse 20 present two non-convergent views— David says, how have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? To which Jonathan replies, you're wrong. You've got it all wrong, David. My father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Verse 2. Now, although David's view is the correct one, he was indeed at the top of Saul's hit list, the conclusion that he has drawn is completely wrong. Verse verse 3, I'm only a step away from death. Worrying words that reveal an obvious slippage in the faith of David. Turn back to chapter uh, 19, verses uh, 19 24. Uh, Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. 
Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left uh, for Ramah and went to the great uh, cistern at Siku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all day and night. See, what's happening here Saul and his soldiers were miraculously neutralized by the protecting hand of God so they could do no harm to David. But David flees from this miraculous protection, and it's not allowed. He doesn't allow it to feed his faith. Instead, we find someone who is pushed into panic mode. Look at 20 verse 1. Then David fled. Who pushed him? Satan, who does all in his power to prevent our faith from feeding on God's past providential provision. Uh, he wants us to so- stop singing with any kind of confidence at all. Oh, God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. And when faith stops feeding, then the panic gears of our mind and heart are quickly engaged. And so we find David in the run. David was in a dangerous place. And this is the context for this encounter with Jonathan in chapter 20. Significantly, Jonathan could see that the most pressing issue was not whether or not he was right or David was right concerning Saul's plans for David's life or death. He saw as of supreme importance the need to correct David's faulty conclusion that his death at the hands of Saul was inevitable. Is it not the case that we can often be so intent upon substantiating our own viewpoint that we fail to minister to the deeper needs of our friends? Wasn't that one of the mistakes uh, made by Job's so-called counselors and friends? So intent upon substantiating their theological viewpoint, their understanding of things, that they don't actually uh, help Job one little bit. What does Jonathan do to rehabilitate David's faith? One of the things he does is he affirms God's sovereign control. may not be uh, immediately apparent, but he says, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Verse 13. Jonathan here is in fact saying, The God who established my father on the throne, despite both internal and external opposition, he's also going to establish you. The God who was with my father... And you'll remember there were some folks who didn't want to have Saul king. 
internal within Israel opposition. And then there were the Ammonites who saw this new king and they thought, here is a great opportunity. He's still vulnerable. Let's attack. Internal, external opposition. And Jonathan is saying, my father established Saul despite these dangers and difficulties. And this same God will establish you despite the dangers and the difficulties. You see, when, like David, we draw the wrong conclusions from the right facts, then we need to thank God for the corrective soul surgery of friends who are eager to remind us that the God who has begun a good work in us will complete it. That if God is for us, who can be against us? Notice that it's only after correcting David's wrong conclusion that he would die at the hand of Saul that Jonathan is ready to discuss David's scheme for the king's banquet, which involves sowing deception in order to expose deception. And so we move on thirdly to division produced by loyal friendship. For at the feast of the new moon, as it ran its course, Saul asks, where is David? Why hasn't he attended the feast? And in response, Jonathan relates David's request for a leave of absence. Indeed, the words he uses in verse 28 quite literally can be translated as David saying to Jonathan, allow me to escape. And in Saul's mind, that's what Jonathan had done. He'd allowed Saul's enemy to slip through his fingers. The nature of Jonathan's reply caused Saul to drop the deceptive mask, that mask of cordiality, and seething fury erupts. Saul is appalled that Jonathan, his own son, wasn't on his side. What about family loyalty? Hadn't he taught Jonathan that blood is thicker than water? Stunningly, Saul's response in verse 30 uses a Hebrew idiom which implies, you're no son of mine. How could his rejection of Jonathan be more public or devastatingly painful? You're no son of mine. You don't belong. Young Christians are often shocked when their loyalty to Christ and his people produce a similar response, and it happens. Where's your family loyalty? They're asked. When really all they've done is attend morning worship rather than stay in bed with the rest of the family to read the Sunday Post. Or they've chosen to attend a Bible study rather than stay at home and watch Coronation Street and TV. Loyal commitment to Jesus and his church can draw out extremely hurtful reactions. You're no son of mine. You're no daughter of mine. And the closer you are 
to your family, the sorer that response is going to be. Now, the thing that really grates with Saul is that his son had placed greater value on loyal friendship than on a royal dynasty. Clearly, the value systems of father and son were light years apart. In Hebrews 11 and 26, we read that Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater uh, value Uh, let me read it again, regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. You see, Moses' adoptive family must also have found it incomprehensible that he chose to side with sweaty slaves when he could have been enjoying a massage and a manicure at the side of the rooftop swimming pool in the palace in Egypt. I wonder if you're familiar with the biography of C.T. Studd. He turned his back on a promising cricketing career for England and indeed on his family estates and wealth. And his family and his friends thought he was mad, absolutely bonkers. But you see, spiritual values make absolutely no sense to material minds. But the issue in our passage is much more than a clash of value systems. The thing that made no sense to Jonathan was the unreasonableness of his father's hatred of David, verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What evil has he done? These are reasonable questions, and they echo the words found in Pilate's lips during Jesus' trial. But there's no reasoning with evil. Evil is not only blind, it is implacably opposed to God's will. In contrast with sweet reasonableness that is the characteristic of the spiritually sensitive, and Saul is past that point. He responded to reason by attempting to silence it by throwing a spear at his son. And had that spear found its target, it would doubtless have been called an honor killing. A young uh, Saudi girl, a Muslim convert, uh, wrote a poem in which she uh, protested her love for her family, her culture, and her land, while at the same time affirming her great love for Jesus. And the heart plea of the poem, which was posted on the internet, just effused sweet reasonableness. And in response, her brother cut off her tongue, poured petrol over her, and set her on fire. Throughout history, evil has used intimidation, suppression, and violence in order to silence sweet reasonableness. Fourthly and finally, the separation of loyal friends. The next morning we find Jonathan standing at the prearranged rendezvous point with a heavy heart. His arrows sail over the rock target, signaling to David, 
that his life was indeed in danger. And then that's reinforced by the coded message of verse 38, hurry, go quickly, don't stop, words that appear to be spoken to Jonathan's young companion, but are surely intended for David. And they mark the the separation of these two friends. Now, Jonathan could easily have resented his father for the loss of his friend, could he not? But he didn't. And we're given a clue as to why in his conversation with David earlier in verse 22, uh, he's working through the scenario. And if it does happen that his father is determined to kill David and David has got to go in the run, what does Jonathan say? He says, then it's the Lord that sent you away. It's the Lord that sent you away. Jonathan had a remarkable grasp of God's sovereignty. Ultimately, God has engineered this separation. The wilderness into which David was about to disappear was God's wilderness. It was the God-appointed environment which would prepare David for kingship. In a similar manner, Samuel Rutherford described his imprisonment in Aberdeen as God's prison. This is God's prison, he said. For there the bulk of his pastoral letters were written, which continue to encourage so many today. We can easily lose sight of God's higher purpose when we are separated from friends and from loved ones. We can blame circumstances. We can blame others. We can blame ourselves. We can even blame God. But as David's life unfolds, it becomes clear that he needed this wilderness experience to prepare him for kingship. It was going to teach him to trust in God as the rock that is higher than I. And the Psalms that are written during this period reveal many of the lessons learned by David in the wilderness. God often weaves into the tapestry of our lives sore wilderness separations for the very same reason. His goal is to bring us to a place of complete abandonment to Himself. You see, sometimes, sometimes, even the very best of human relationships can become a substitute for a deep-seated dependence on God. We read in verse 41 that David broke cover. Clearly, his emotions were running too high for a wordless separation. Uh, And in this farewell scene, both men break down, and we read, David wept the most. Why? Well, David would be separated from family, from army comrades, from the people of Israel to whom he had endeared himself, and of course, separation from Jonathan, his friend. The price of separation as a result of traveling in obedience to the will of God can be a costly part of Christian cross-bearing 
and form a part of the believer's fellowship in Christ's own sufferings. The biography of the missionary John Payton describes such a separation. He stood with his father on Greenock Dock before boarding ship for the New Hebrides, and tears streamed down the faces of both of these men as they embraced each other for what they knew would be the last time here on earth. For them, this separation was part of the cost of following in obedience to Jesus. There is uh, significance in the final words of separation spoken in verse 42, go in peace or go into peace. David was about to enter hostile territory. Wanted posters would doubtless describe him as an outlaw. Army patrols would pursue him. And Jonathan is saying, God's peace is able to keep you in a hostile environment. The dangers are many, but God is greater than the dangers. John Payton clearly shared that belief. He wrote in his journal as he became aware of the the local New Hebrides uh, headhunters who daily trained their weapons on him. uh, He wrote, and okay, maybe he stole it from Whitfield. He wrote, I am immortal until God calls me home. There are many dangers, but God is greater than the dangers. And so I am immortal until God calls me home. The second assurance Jonathan gave in verse 42 was that their covenant friendship wouldn't dissolve simply because they were no longer in regular contact. Theirs was a forever friendship, not a case of out of sight and out of mind. One sometimes hears people say, oh, but our lives have moved on and we have a different set of friends now and different interests. But not David and Jonathan. Indeed, some years uh, after their dramatic parting and after David had experienced a period of sustained buffeting, Jonathan sought David out for what would be their last encounter. And we are given the reason for him seeking David out. In 1 Samuel uh, 23 and 16 following, he did so in order to help him find strength in God. Theirs was a forever friendship. He wanted the best for his friend. He saw him at his most needy and went in order to help him find strength in God. Some time ago when attending a conference, I met up with a Christian friend whom I hadn't seen or indeed had contact with for many years. And in the free time that we have after lunch, you always have free time after lunch because uh, if you have a a conference session after lunch, you all go to sleep. So you get free time, so you can walk all of that food off. So we were doing precisely that, and in the course of conversation, this is what he said. Isn't it great that after all these years, we can pick up the bond of friendship 
that is ours. Not seen you for years. We have, we have not contacted, we've not written letters, we've not even sent emails. But after all these years, we can pick up that friendship because of the bond that binds us together. And just to hear that did my heart good. Clearly, David and Jonathan provide us with a wonderful biblical model of friendship, and so much more could be said about it. But it's surely a model worth pursuing and developing. However, I'm conscious that some Christians may be tempted to think, uh, this is quite discouraging. I don't have that kind of friendship. And I don't even see one on the immediate horizon. Well, if that is the case, then perhaps you need to realize that you have a better friend than even a David or a Jonathan. You have a faithful friend who sticks closer than a brother. For in Jesus, we have someone who accepts us just as we are. He is determined to strengthen our faith when it's found flagging. He recognizes the value of wilderness experiences that are going to shape us into the people that he wants us to become. And he represents us not before a fickle monarch, before the throne of the eternal God, and his requests are always heard. And this same Jesus has paid a far greater cost than we will ever be able to comprehend in order that we might be called his friends. Truly, what a friend we have in Jesus. May God seal his word to our minds and to our hearts. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Dot .org Thanks for listening.